Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, Because You Hid Yourself. It's based upon the lectionary readings for November 29th, 2020, the first Sunday in Advent. If someone had told me back in February that we would still be in the thick of the COVID pandemic nine months later, wearing masks, staying away from our loved ones, attending church over Zoom or YouTube, and watching in horror as the global death toll rises, I would not have believed them. But here we still are, on the verge of another liturgical season and a new church year, here we still are, bewildered, grieving, fearful, and exhausted, haunted, if we're honest, by the question good Christians are often afraid to ask. Where is God? Luckily for us, the biblical writers do not share our reticence about naming and lamenting God's hiddenness. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down, cries Isaiah in our Old Testament reading for this first Sunday of the season. Restore us, O Lord of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved, pleads the psalmist. The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, says Jesus in Mark's gospel, describing a state of godless catastrophe I wish I did not recognize in the world around me. What an odd way to usher in Advent. What a bizarre way to shout, Happy New Year, Church! Is this really where we're supposed to begin? By naming the elephant in the room so explicitly? So baldly? Like some of you, I didn't grow up observing Advent. Since my childhood church didn't follow the liturgical calendar, my family went straight from Thanksgiving turkeys and pumpkin pies to Christmas trees and jingle bells, one consumer-feeding frenzy pressing hard into the next. It's only in the past few years that I've come to value what Nora Gallagher calls the counterweight of liturgical time one time set against another. It's only recently that I've embraced the stark, hard-edged gifts Advent provides. This year in particular, I believe we need these gifts gifts desperately. According to the week's readings, we enter this first season of the Christian New Year, if we dare enter it at all, in lamentation, eschewing all forms of denial, polite piety and cheap cheer, we allow the radical honesty of scripture to make us honest too. How long will you be angry with your people's prayers, asks the psalmist in desperation. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed, cries Isaiah. During Advent, we stop posturing and pretending. We quit trying to make God's hiddenness okay. We shed our greeting card assumptions about the divine. We get real. Our world is not okay, is what these Advent readings declare in stark, unflinching terms. God's apparent absence is not fine. It hurts. It hurts so much we can barely breathe from the agony of it. We are surrounded by evil and suffering. We're not sure our faith can endure what our eyes reluctantly witness each day. And though we long for a Savior to rend the heavens and come down, the very ferocity of that longing is wearying our souls. Hope itself has become a grind. The first gift of Advent is the permission to tell the truth, even if that truth is laced with sorrow. We are invited to describe life on earth as it is, and not as we mistakenly assume our religion requires us to render it. 
into our surrounding cultures of denial and spin, apathy and hedonism, we are called to speak the whole truth. We need God. We need God to show up. We need God to stay. We need God to love, hold, deliver and restore us. We were created for intimacy with the just, gracious and profoundly compassionate Savior. And when that intimacy is missing, we suffer. The second gift of the season is less a gift than a discipline. It is the discipline of waiting. During Advent, we live with quiet anticipation in the not yet. We stop rushing and decide to call sacred what is yet in process and unformed. As Paul puts it in this week's reading from 1 Corinthians, we wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is no easy task in today's world which applauds arrivals, finish lines, shortcuts, and end products far more than it does the meandering journey or odd way station. Eugene Peterson calls the Christian life a long obedience in the same direction, and I don't think we can get more countercultural than that. If the secular world speeds past darkness into the safe certainty of light, then Advent reminds us that necessary things, things worth waiting for, happen in the soft, fertile dark. Next spring, seeds break open in dark winter soil. God's spirit hovers over dark water, preparing to create worlds. The child we yearn for grows in the deep darkness of the womb. I wonder if years from now, when we look back on these bleak months of the pandemic, we will recognize these days of waiting, waiting for a vaccine, waiting for a cure, waiting for a return to our normal social lives as paradoxical treasures. Learning to wait for God is akin to learning a new form of physical exercise. Waiting is a muscle. It has to be worked, toned, sculpted, and shaped over a sustained period of time. To sit and wait for God, not in bitterness, not with cynicism, not in fake and frozen piety, is serious spiritual work. But it is the invitation of Advent. To wait. Thirdly, Advent prepares us for the God who is coming. A God who will turn out to be very different from the one we expect and maybe even hope to find. I am always struck by the difference between the biblical passages we read during Advent and the ones we shift to when Christmas finally arrives. This week, Isaiah longs for a very big God to do very big things. Recalling the history of the Exodus, he asks God to once again do awesome deeds, deeds that will make the mountains quake and the nations tremble. Come to us as fire, he pleads, fire that kindles and burns, fire that sets the world boiling. Who among us has not prayed such prayers? For the past nine months, my prayers have been as outsized as Isaiah's. Bring an end to the pandemic, protect the most vulnerable, strengthen healthcare workers, help the unemployed, spare the children, save the world. But why stop there? Why not go further? Eradicate all illness, clean up the mess in Washington, D.C., end world hunger, root out corruption, destroy systemic racism, thwart corporate greed, protect this wounded planet before we ravage it past saving, and most of all, shield us, O Lord, from our sinful, self-destructive selves. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. I don't believe I can or should stop praying these prayers. God is big, and when I come to God in prayer, dreaming of a just and holy redeemed world, I know I'm dreaming a tiny version of God's own dream. But during Advent, I'm asked to prepare myself for something else, someone else, someone so unexpected and so small, I'm tempted to either laugh or cry at the thought of him. 
The world is falling apart. My heart is exhausted. People are dying and God chooses to send me a baby? In his sermon entitled The Face in the Sky, Frederick Beekner describes the incarnation as a kind of scandal, one that requires us to ponder the shocking unpredictability of God. Quote, those who believe in God can never in a way be sure of him again. Once they have seen him in the stable, they can never be sure where he will appear, or to what lengths he will go, or to what ludicrous depths of self-humiliation he will descend in his wild pursuit of humankind. If holiness and the awful power and majesty of God were present in this least auspicious of all events, this birth of a peasant's child, then there is no place or time so lowly and earthbound, but that holiness can be present there, too. What are we to make of this? The God who is limitless chooses limits. One womb, one backwater town, one bygone century, one brief life, one agonizing death. The salvation we long for is not the salvation he brings. These are not easy or comfortable truths to accept. They are truths to wrestle with hard and long, truths to weep over, truths to receive with gentleness and care. Come Christmas, I want to be ready to receive God as God is, not as I might wish God to be or insist God become. Advent is my time to prepare for the Savior who is. So, here we are, exactly where we need to be. Here we are, wrestling with the brokenness of the world and the hiddenness of our God. Here we are, voicing our laments and registering our yearnings. Here we are, waiting. Here we are, preparing ourselves for the God who is coming. Oh, that you would tear the heavens and come down. This is an honest prayer and we need not fear it. It is okay to pray into the silence, the hiddenness and the absence. It's okay to struggle with Advent and its complicated gifts. So pray and wait, wait and pray. As much as you can, be patient. Be still, hope fiercely. Deep in the gathering dark, something tender is forming. Something beautiful. Something for the world's saving waits to be born. For books this week, Brad Keister reviews The Great Influenza, The Story of the Deadliest Pandemic in History by John M. Barry. This book tells a horrifying story of a particular strain of influenza that swept the globe near the end of the First World War. Those who suffered and died from it, as well as those people in positions of power who altered its course, the physicians, the scientists, and the politicians. As Barry observes, there had been other strains of influenza in the past, but this one, now known as H1N1, was particularly virulent, causing pain and death sometimes within hours. The precise origin cannot be traced, but appears to have started at a military base in Kansas in late 1918, while the United States was immersed in World War I. The wartime setting meant that bases were often crowded or overcrowded, and soldiers were often quickly moved from one base to another. It also meant that as a disease spread, there was a conscious attempt to downplay its effect in order to avoid a demoralizing impact on the war effort. But it wasn't long before soldiers carried the virus to cities with devastating results. The mortality rate in some cities rose to the point where the dead could not be buried fast enough, reminiscent of the bubonic plague in the 14th century. 
Some politicians ignored the crisis, chose not to learn about the disease, and eventually became irrelevant, as other individuals from the private and public sectors eventually stepped in. American society was inundated with rumors and tales about how to combat the illness, making it difficult to filter what true information there was. Compounding the tragedy was the fact that medicine as we know it now was almost non-existent a mere hundred years ago. Barry provides a historical background, noting that, as recently as the late 19th century, medical schools were simply money-making operations, admitting anyone willing to pay, college degree or no, thus perpetuating a culture of gross incompetence. That began to change with the founding of John Hopkins University and subsequently its medical school. This was the focused effort of a cadre of doctors trained overseas led by William Welch, the individual of the moment with gifts of talent, leadership, and persuasion. Also at that time, the science was far less understood than it is today. The DNA molecule was known, but no one knew of its connection to genetics. Tracking down the true influenza culprit took much trial and error. Was it bacteria? Or was the bacteria a consequence of a virus? In the end, it is estimated that 100 million people died worldwide. Barry, Barry clearly intended this book as a primer, looking forward to the inevitable next pandemic, and he concludes with an analysis of lessons learned. And now, of course, that next pandemic has arrived in the form of the novel coronavirus. The race to find a vaccine is on, but science and medicine are now much better equipped to find it. Yet, the quest for the cure is only part of the story, both now and back then. One cannot know how many leaders have read this book, and our society is struggling with some of the same issues that it was almost 100 years ago. This book could have been written today. It is sobering that it was written 15 years ago. One reviewer described it as hypnotizing, horrifying, energetic, lucid prose. Barry's book spent over a year on the New York Times bestseller list. For films this week, Dan reviews The Edge of Democracy. The actress and filmmaker Petra Costa wrote, directed, produced, and narrated this documentary about the fall of Brazil's two democratically elected presidents and its subsequent descent into the authoritarian populist regime of Bolsonaro. It's a third in a trilogy of films by Costa that blends her family's personal history with Brazil's national politics. The Edge of Democracy premiered on opening night at the 2019 Sundance Festival and was later nominated for Best Documentary Feature at the 2020 Academy Awards. When President Lula left office as a popular two-term president, 2003 to 2010, he had an 87% approval rating. Obama famously called him the most popular politician on earth. He handpicked his successor, his former chief of staff Dilma Rousseff, whose approval rating hit 65%, 2011 to 2016. Today, Lula is serving a 12-year prison term. Rousseff has been impeached, and the far-right and apolog unapologetically vulgar Bolsonaro has earned the praise of Trump. Today, I as I feel the ground opening, says Costa, I fear our democracy was nothing but a short-lived dream. For more on this important subject, see the book How Democracies Die by the Harvard University political scientists Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt. And lastly, for poetry on this first Sunday of Advent, On the Mystery of the Incarnation by Denise Levertov. It's when we face for a moment the worst our kind can do and shudder to know the taint in our own selves that awe cracks the mind's shell and enters the heart, not to a flower, 
not to a dolphin, to no innocent form, but to this creature, vainly sure it and no other is godlike. God, out of compassion for our ugly failure to evolve, entrusts as guest, as brother, the word. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for November 29th, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.